Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. I'm excited to have you join us for the conversation with Erdem Overchik, CEO of Donkey Republic, the first shared micromobility player to go public globally. It's a great discussion about how the market has evolved and why we see increasingly tight cooperation with governments being the next phase of shared market developments. Before we dig into that though, I do want to thank our sponsor for the episode, Ubique. Ubique are making shared mobility profitable. How, you might ask? Well, they use data-driven services to automate operations and ensure vehicles are in the right place at the right time to meet demand. This enables Ubique's customers to increase revenue by up to 20% while also decreasing operational costs. Offering solutions such as automated rebalancing and charging as a service, Ubique is using the power of the crowd to exploit the full potential of fleets. Whether it's the intelligence to help existing service teams work more efficiently or a more hands-off approach, Ubique has the service for it. The street crowd service that they have matches vehicles requiring repositioning or charging with crowd users, allowing shared mobility providers to operate far more autonomously. Ubique is also increasing the efficiency of ops teams by helping clear out the uncertainty of how underutilized vehicles are. With its plug-in forecasting models, one can easily see where the improvements can be made. The best part, it's plug and play and you can get started right away. Head to ubique.ai to find out more. Finally, the next Micromobility America conference is now scheduled for the 23rd of September, 2021. It'll be at Pier 70 in San Francisco and have more than 50 top speakers from the industry with more than a thousand global participants and hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details. And with that, here's Erdem. Let's go. Welcome to the Micromobility podcast slash show, Erdem. It's lovely to have you here. For folks who don't know me, obviously, I'm Oliver, the host of the show, but I'm very excited today. I've been following Donkey Republic for a while. Hadn't heard of you until I got to Europe and to, to Berlin, but you were very cheeky in the way that you took to the micromobility conference going on and you decided to park a bunch of the uh, Donkey Republic bikes outside. I thought that was very, really smart. <laughs> when we you can do if you operate in Berlin, right? Yes, indeed, indeed. Hey, but look, it's a total pleasure to have you here and thank you very much for making the time. What would be really great is for you to just take me through, like what's the backstory of yourself and then and Donkey Republic. And then I, I, I'm very curious, like where did the name come from and things like that? Sure, Oliver. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. So my name is Arda. It's a Turkish name. I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. For those who haven't visited, it's a very congested city. I think in top 10 in the rankings, of most congested cities. And I really enjoyed when I landed in Copenhagen 13 years ago, what bikes can do for quality of life. I also have experiences of living in actually in the US, both in Bay Area and in, in the East Coast in DC and New York and in London. And I have to say that quality of life in Copenhagen, in my mind, owes a lot to the 40 plus percent modality of bikes. For those who haven't lived here or somewhere in, in, in Holland or haven't visited, it, it really feels like a different planet. 
where getting around is easy, it feels safe, it's fresh, and there's a lot of dedicated bike lanes and most people are all the time on their bikes. Yeah, I actually have some bike congestion. You might sometimes not hit the green light because there's so much queue in front of you. Oh, no way. Yeah, it happens rarely, but it, nevertheless, so there's, you know, there's a rush hour traffic on the bikes and it's all very fun. You yeah. kind of uh, socialize with people around you. So the name Dunk Your Public comes from the ambition to scale bike shares that I saw back in 2013 were not scaling as they, in my mind, should because they mm. were bringing so much benefit. But at the same time, I was teaching entrepreneurship at the uh, university here. And I asked the class, what is your favorite startup and CEO? And someone mentioned Uber and Travis, and I had not heard about Uber at that point. Mm. So I looked into it and I saw the, the motto is everyone's private taxi cab. And I thought, wow, what a terrible vision. <laughs> I thought this couldn't be, I mean, in Istanbul, a lot of people use taxis and so do people in both East West Coast. So I thought, you know, it could just add more congestion. And I think recent studies have shown which I think both Uber and Lyft have also agreed to that they are adding to congestion. So it's a it's a it's a little known fact. We 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 really didn't want to. And I used to be at Uber, so we thought we were contributing to making the place a lot better. But because you don't need to own a car, and so in theory you can reduce the number of trips on the road. But it'll you know the way obviously lots of deadheading and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, what are you replacing? Are you replacing public uh, transport trips and so on and so forth? Yeah, the idea was to create a name or a system or platform that would be for everyone, not for the exclusive few. And I think Uber resonates with something more at the sort of German word. Uber is the, the higher level. And donkey is, I wanted something back to simplicity. So an mm. animal, and then something I, I was thinking about iron horse and a, a friend with better humor than I have said, you know, why don't you think about donkey? That's the more funny. Well, it's animal. good. You didn't call it ass, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. Republic is because um, I was aware of the, the critical mass, which is a bit of a movement in Europe uh, every month. And I believe maybe potentially other cities around the globe cycle fans are meeting up and I think arranged with the with the city traffic forces. They kind of blockade a main road and they kind of celebrate cycling by yes. going slow and having balloons and, you know, just having a little festival. So I really like that movement around cycling and we wanted to create that movement in our name as well. So that's the Republic. Fantastic. Oh, awesome. And so, and we, as you say, you started doing this in 2013? Is that 2013 is when I start working on the idea. 2015 is when me and the three co-founders, fantastic guys, without them, I think nothing would have happened, but we, yep. uh, we went full-time working on this. Awesome. And so um, I know you've got a couple of slides that you'd love to pull up and, and we can share as well. So because I'd love to kind of get a, a snapshot of where the company's at at the moment. For folks who are listening to this on audio, Donkey Republic's 13,000 bikes as of Q1 and 2021, 75 locations, 500,000 riders since 2019, Danish krona of 33 million in revenue in 2019 that obviously dipped during COVID. 8.6 million trips taken since 2016 and at the moment, 63 employees. And as I understand it, you're still updating these. This was a little while back. So a couple of months old. The, yes. And yeah. riders, we count them as people who actually took a ride on the donkey, almost 600,000 back in, in March or April. And yeah, I think if you look at just downloads or registrations, we are past a million and 33 million krona in 19. That's a bit above $5 million in 2019. 
Excellent. You know, the reason I wanted to bring you onto the podcast, and I think you're uh, a really interesting business is because one, you're public. So publicly traded company. So I'd love to jam on that. And we're going to dig into that today. But the second is that you have this really interesting operating model of being both an operator, but also selling a solution to cities. So do you want to talk through how that works and your kind of unique approach there? Sure. Yes. We have built this turnkey solution, which we operate ourselves in many cities. We kind of had to prove that this turnkey solution does work well by having it scaled in, in a number of cities. In this map to the left, you can see the bright orange dots are the cities that we operate and the brown ones partners operate. And the size of the dot shows where we are on how large the operation is. And you can see we are rather strong in Denmark and Benelux, so the Netherlands and, and Belgium. And mm-hmm. then a few other interesting capitals like Berlin, Barcelona, Budapest, Geneva. Yep. And those are the cities that we operate ourselves and with larger fleets. And then countries. So we're in Copenhagen and or top five cities in Denmark and also top cities in Poland. That's what we call the mass mobility as a service where we own and operate the bikes. Yep. And we have both regular pedal bikes and e-bikes there. And we started with that model and we had to kind of convince ourselves and then the partners that our model was working well. Mm. And, and, you know, we started in 2015 when micromobility was not a word that was coined yet. Yeah, the first scooter companies really came to market in 2018. So this was a time when in 2016, when we got our first venture money in, we had to convince them that there was a billion dollar market for bike sharing, not a trillion dollar market, but a billion yeah, dollar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you know, amazing. It was like, will anyone really use, you know, so this was really back in time where no one was looking into micromobility for a business that could attract venture capital. We were really pioneer, but venture capital in Europe, especially in Northern Europe, is also quite conservative. So breaking through that and sort of bringing in the, the kind of money that uh, other companies have in China or US is, has been rather yeah, difficult or slow. In 2018, we started to see demand from a number of potential partners where they wanted to launch donkeys in their own town. And we had developed our system to make that rather easy. Besides the bikes, you have a operator app where the shepherds, as we call them, the mechanics can see which bikes need service, where to rebalance them. And also we have the invoicing in the, in the admin portal that enables someone to relatively easily set up an operation and, and run the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started doing that in a few cities and then Typically, it's a partner who has some kind of, it could be an NGO, it could be a utility provider, it could be a car-related business, it could be an entrepreneurs launching things off. And they typically have some kind of business model that brings them some cash in addition to B2C, in addition to the consumer. So it's either the city or they are serving a university campus or it's a utility Mm. company that wants to combine it with their buses or train network. Yep. or a car company or auto part company that wants to offer it to their parking lots or real estate developers and so on and so forth. Of course, many of them are backed by cities. Awesome. And so you've got at the moment 2,700 bikes Correct. on that and with 40 partners, 60 locations. And is that when you, you know, I guess the part that I have is when you do a partnership with a city, the sense that I get is that a lot of cities are kind of have been looking around at a lot of these scooter operators and, you know, going, look, this is all fine and good, but actually we want to be able to build and maintain and own our own system within a city. We can sort out the parking. We can sort out all the, make it so that it works with the infrastructure and that sort of stuff. That to me is how I kind of see a lot of governments 
going and responding? So I'm serving as the chairman in Cycling Industries Europe Bike Sharing Group, and I'm rather close to the discussions with the uh, with the cities, both as the industry and as Dunkirk Public. Mm. And bike shares have been accepted since 2002 or beginning of 2000s as part of public transport in Europe. Mm. And even in the US, because you have a bunch of bike sharing systems that are publicly financed with long-term contracts. And it's quite comparable to bus and train operations, which are typically 30 to 70% subsidized or publicly financed. This is a very strong or reliable recurring business model. And the reason that bikes receive this is that the benefits of bike sharing or bikes in general, in terms of congestion, CO2 savings, and most importantly, health benefits, keeping people active, is, mm. is very important for public authorities. So they also serve as last mile for both train and bus. So if you want to strengthen those existing public transport, you kind of need to supplement it with, with sort of bike share. Mm. So for that reason, bike shares typically have been publicly financed. There was a period with when Asian bike shares, the Ofo and Mobike were coming to Europe. There was a period where cities were kind of more on the defense. So there's sort of these three periods, as I can see. So from early 2000 to 2016, cities have been procuring these bespoke expensive bike sharing systems, typically tier one cities, so the largest cities. And then there has been a three-year period where there's been an explosion of these venture-based bike and scooter sharing companies. And cities have been going from paying a lot for this public service, having to kind of hit the brakes for something they otherwise thought was really beneficial. And then they had to understand the nuances between the different kinds of services and the different business models. They saw bike sharing fleets coming in and out like Ofo and Mobike. They've seen also, you know, in in a bunch of cities, jump, enter and, and leave the market. And to some extent, some of the scooter companies coming in and out. So one of the reasons I believe the scooters are not getting public finance at all so far. So they are receiving permits in a, a number of cities and they are not receiving permits in other cities. And they have, in as far as I see, they have not been publicly financed so far. Um, mm. They are not considered a mode of public transport, just like car share. Car share has not been publicly financed so far. So from public opinion, there's some difference between bike share and guru share or car share categorically in that sense. And so when you're offering these, just so I just so I'm really clear. So when you're offering these as some mobility as a service, so you've got your own service that you offer. Those are all dockless. You don't offer docked systems. They are comparable. Are they the e-bikes or are they standard bikes? And like, what's the mix of that? How do you think about that aspect of the service? Yeah, we are not recommending docks. We recommend that cities use existing public infrastructure for shared bikes as well as private bikes. Mm-hmm. And some cities want docks, then we are able to provide them with docks that work with our bikes. But we don't do free float, which is you can park your vehicle, your bike anywhere. Mm-hmm. We mark a bunch of what we call hubs or virtual stations on the app where yep. we select bike racks, the public bike racks, and then ask users to return it there. We've been using this for five years now with success. Cities enjoy it a lot. And and a number of experts of bike sharing, actually, I heard from Russell, who's created the World Bike Sharing Map and has seen everything, who unfortunately passed away last year, but was also saying, this is the future. It really makes sense that Mm, you don't have mm. to create a parallel infrastructure to the, you know, the private parking that you have to create yet another parking infrastructure for the shared vehicles. 
other components in this wheel down here, you can see controlled parking, affordability for the actual customers. They want cities would like to work with local partners. They want to see bikes that actually last. How do you operate them in a sustainable way or not? Do you use gig economy when you service your bikes or do you employ people? And so these are some of the elements they look at when they are picking who they should permit or actually who they provide public finance for. And so the majority of those city deals that you're winning, are they actually like subsidizing those bikes in most of those places? And and, yes. and yeah, okay, right. So like fully integrated into other apps, you can hop off and in theory, have that be work with a transit card or is it still bookable in an app? Is there any level of integration there? Interesting you bring this up. I believe we are also on the forefront of that. We offer the Tom integration, which is a open bike group from Netherlands, which was sponsored by the Ministry of Transport of, of Netherlands, which is a very cycling country. They want mm. to make sure that bike sharing is integrated to public transport from the right. get-go. So they set up a budget. They created seven pilots in seven regions in Holland. And they, these regions, the mass aggregators and the operators such as ourselves, many others together in a group of about 20 aggregators and operators have come up with both the technical and the commercial conditions of integrating, aggregating or full integration of bikes. And now it's actually expanding to other vehicles, which is shortly called TOMP. And Interesting. Tomp, so is this like a competitor to the GBFS standard? As well as I know, GBFS is more about data reporting to cities and not for full integration where you can book and rent a bike and where the aggregator is responsible for you know all the different aspects of what, what happens to the bike and charging the customer and billing them and so on and so forth. So GBFS is still used, I think, as the dominant standard for reporting data to cities, yep. whereas Tomp API seems to be picking up as the full integration of micromobility to those integrators. And that is so because of exactly what you mentioned. Initially, cities are requesting that Donkey and other services they procure are able to fully integrate to their publicly qualified mass aggregation apps. Totally. And it's actually really interesting. This is the first I've heard of Tom. I follow, it's one of these weird little rabbit holes that one ends up going down when one's interested in micromobility. But I've actually interviewed the team from the developed GBFS and MDS, which is the, the other one that's oftentimes used for data reporting. And it's very common in the US. But this is very interesting. So has Tom been adopted by other players in Europe as well? It's not? Many of them. And other cities as well, not just not just the Netherlands? Yeah, not just the country of Netherlands, but many other countries or cities in other countries are using Tomp because there has not been a standard and everyone is saying that we do need a standard. So it looks like the most promising standard. I don't think there are yet many services up and running. We might mm. be the first one. So we just integrated or fully integrated to a couple of aggregators in Holland as of last month. Excellent. Okay, great. I'm going to go dig into this. It's marvelous. Excellent. Well, look, the other thing as well that I'm kind of curious about is that you've got, you've obviously built a business where you've got your own operations and you're bidding in these cities. And then you've got other cities that are, are sort of saying, we want to effectively pay for and run our own services. We just need someone who can like actually operate it, but we don't, we will pay for it and everything. What is the breakdown of cities like? Is it typically like larger cities feel like they can get by with having the private sector solve for this? Or so the smaller cities are the ones who say we'll pay for it because we don't we don't feel that we can get that out of the private sector or? 
yeah. how does that break down? As we see it, there are about three tiers of the one plus million population cities. There's about 20 of them in Europe. They are the tier one cities that everyone wants to play in. They have the highest density of population where micromobility makes most sense. Mm-hmm. And they are already having 90 plus percent of them have a micromobility or a bike share service that the official bike share service that they pay for. And they have the highest density of bike sharing, about three bikes per thousand citizens or residents. Right. And then you have the tier two cities, as we classify it, is between 200,000 and 1 million people. And then tier three, between 20,000 and 200,000. And in those two groups, you have about 2,500 cities in Europe, especially in the tier three group, you have 2,000 cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really the, or 2,200 cities. So that's really the large group. And then the medium group is about 200 cities. Yep. A number of tier three cities, most of the tier three cities don't yet have a micromobility service that they yeah. sponsor. And without public finance, most of them do not make sense unless there's a, a lot of visitors or university campus. It won't make sense financially to set up an operation there without public finance. So the cities there are typically right now post-COVID, and I'll touch on that, EU is really pushing this agenda and so are many countries or so national governments. So many cities, also tier three cities and tier two cities, who historically have not put as much money and attention into bike sharing, are actually gearing up and, and pushing this agenda forward. Mm. And when they do procure a bike share, unlike tier one cities, they are not so much into branding themselves as you know, we have our own brand or our own app. They want something they know that works and they, they care about the affordability. They want something mm-hmm. responsible. And so Donkey fits really well because we are very affordable, both for the city and for the rider. We don't do white label, which might disqualify us from other cities that do want that. But then we can deploy very fast and we have a lot of flexibility in the product. We can work with local partners, which smaller cities quite like. Yeah, we can set up the price scheme or we can create the hub map as they like. And also we can create exclusive bikes or discounted memberships for certain groups that let's say public workers. And so we can do a lot of things that that they would like to see. Fantastic. And with that, like, I can totally see that that's the case where you've got those smaller cities where the, the standard economics probably wouldn't stack up. Does that funding typically come from local councils or are there national level governments that are effectively saying we're going to fund or does it change city by city or is there some sort of like standard funding system across the EU around how those would end up funded? Okay, so I think local and regional governments are behind the funding and typically local governments need to apply for funding of such thing in their budgets. Oftentimes, there's the national government has a program that they apply to unless they place some of their unearmarked money into procuring some bike sharing. Right. Uh, Post-COVID, EU has set up a 700 billion euro recovery budget. And this 700 billion budget, one third of that has to be spent on sustainable development, also green development, you could say. And because one of the vice presidents of EU is actually from Holland and a big advocate of cycling and the DG move, so director general of transportation in Europe is also very publicly pro cycling. They have also managed politically to put in into the program of of post-COVID reconstruction that the mobility services and smart services where you can get services on the go and cycling infrastructure specifically are recognized as part of these sustainable developments. 
So bike sharing is triggering both or tick marking both of those conditions yes. because it's a smart service and it is improving the infrastructure for cycling. So we see a lot of cities now are piggybacking on that budget and they have to use that within the next two, three years. So there's a lot of demand right now. Yeah. Oh, that's I mean, exciting for you as an operator, obviously. <laughs> well, look, I want to kind of shift gears around that because I mean, I think that that's it's very exciting to see that there's obviously a lot of development on that side and that the governments are finally getting their acts together. Because I think this has been one of those things that like, certainly in the early days of the kind of shared micromobility explosion, it felt very obvious to me having been at Uber and seen how the regulatory response was to that, that there was no way that, you know, you've got all your stuff on the street. Like this idea that you're going to be able to continue to operate and that everybody will be very happy with you just wasn't and and that's what we saw literally like people would go out at night and take up all your scooters and all of a sudden you got a million dollars worth of inventory that's just stuck behind a lock key door somewhere and nobody would get it back so it's obvious that there's going to need to be a lot more interaction and a lot more regulatory framing but very exciting to see because i think in some ways europe leads the world on how these shared systems are going to get built certainly there's a lot more funding available than than a lot of other places it's just it is interesting to me how quickly it happens and obviously COVID, i think has really accelerated that obviously a bit of a bad year for you last year but i assume that a lot of this comes down to good quality infrastructure that there's road space allocated to people so that they feel safe to be able to go and ride in these places etc any any commentary in there no i think i agree with all you say one of the things i guess is there's a lot more skepticism about Technology companies bring positive welfare by definition. You know, we Mm. tend to advocate for things like Uber or Lyft would reduce congestion. That was sort of the rhetoric for a long time. And then studies were made and it was proven or shown that it wasn't the case. And similar resentments about Facebook and Google and Airbnb and Amazon and so on and so forth. There is a resentment about large VC-backed, we're going to conquer the world next year or in three years time kind of rhetoric is not from the get-go, is not what resonates with public officials. That is exactly what resonates with the investors, with the venture capital Mm. investors. So you have this dichotomy, like one force pulls one direction, the other, another direction. And I'm happy to say that at Donkey, we have bet on positive regulation. We have bet on regulation coming into place. We've created the virtual hub-centric operation, which was not the preference of the riders. You know, the citizens preferred it. They didn't want the vehicles all over the place, but the riders thought, I can I park the bike 50 meters right at my doorstep? Well, you know what? Because it's annoying for the next guy. And, you know, it's (laughs) in the long term, it's not going to be viable. So let's just do things in a viable way. And, you know, there were other services that did allow that. And we have to compete. So you can take positions where you see that this is not what public officials appreciate. And it requires you to take a long-term bet towards positive regulation. Similar thing with gig economy. Similar thing with your vehicle lifetimes or or where you procure them. And, you know, do you have the the qualifications and and so on and so forth, you know, the licensing, the standards on the vehicles. Mm -hmm. But in the short term, we suffered. Again, like we didn't raise the largest amount. So we've been around for six years and, you know, I'm just saying we we raised 6 million. But the good news is we've been doubling our revenues outside of COVID year on year. And we just see the trajectory going that way rather than trying to tenfold it year after year and then, you know, passing out. We hopefully will continue this uh, more, more healthy, still exponential trajectory of growth. Fair enough. And I want to actually get into that as well, because I think that there's so... You kind of alluded to it in your discussion around fundraising, which is 
So you started 2015. So you've been around for six years. You've, how, how much money have you raised? And obviously as well, I, I know that you've just gone public on the NASDAQ First North. I didn't even know what that was. So an explanation of what the NASDAQ First North is was probably the first place to start. And then we can go into you know what the fundraising journey has been. Sure. Yeah. So NASDAQ as a company has NASDAQ family has created yes. NASDAQ First North seeing a need for a small cap listing market in the Nordics. So there Can't are Danish, okay. Danish, Norwegian companies in NASDAQ First North and market cap is anywhere between 10 and $100 million. Let's say, broadly speaking, that's about the market there. Great. Um, okay. And it's based in Copenhagen. There are Swedish and Danish and Norwegian companies. They are serving all these three countries. Traded in Danish kroner and it's pegged to euro. It's been so for since euro was established at seven and a half Danish kroners to euro. So it's a quite a stable currency. And yeah, it's a, it's a quite nice market. We have listed there in May of this year. We've raised just short of 15 million euros, 14.7 million euros. So we raised 10 million of almost the 15 from institutional investors, including European Investment Bank and two pension funds. And then the remaining 5 million was raised from retail investors, which were pretty much all Danish. Right. And what we're doing with this is we expect to be cash positive in 23 and profitable in 24. And yeah, to get there, we'll be ramping up the SaaS revenue. SaaS is where, you know, the whole thing with the partnerships, so software as a service, it's higher profit margin when we run SaaS compared to mass, just because we don't have the whole operation and, you know, this, the software has almost zero margin, yep. uh, sorry, zero cost of a lot of margin. And then the mass B2B and B2G revenue, especially the B2G revenue is making a tremendous difference. The whole public finance coming in also wonderfully recurring. And then we are growing the e-bike fleet and we're seeing also really good synergies from having e-bikes next to pedal bikes, people who define themselves as cyclists, which regularly between those two, depending their distance and how tired they feel and the wind and everything else, right? Yes. Yep. Naturally. That, that's also looking great. We set the target at around 30 million euros by 2024 as the revenue target. So that would be yeah, around 35, $40 million by 2024. Relatively speaking, I mean, sorry, you're at... 30 million dollars so that's so we come from 5 million in 2019 to yes okay 5 million dollars to 30 million 35 million dollars in 2024 right right and i guess the question that i have in there right is going well that seems to me like a relatively decent growth business it's not you know crazy zoom in the beginning of a pandemic sort of crazy but you know nothing to be sneezed at what's the reception been in general from that kind of going public because you're one of the first companies that's gone public like the only other companies obviously birds looking and going via respect but that's been sniffed around but not yet actually confirmed and the only other one that that we have is helpers which is obviously going public in the us and that still hasn't actually gone live yet at the time of recording so you're in some ways like a, i feel like a canary in the coal mine of how the public markets might right. actually think about this Right. Obviously, we're not a scooter company. We're a bike sharing company and most mm -hmm. of our fleet, 90 plus percent is currently pedal bikes, although it will change and it will be more like one third or one half will be e-bikes by 2024. Yeah, we are not exactly a scooter company, but we have a lot of interesting numbers to share about the micromobility market. And we have a quite different take. As you see, we're not growing as aggressively as, as some of the others. We deploy different kind of business model and very much working with the cities. But I think one of the key aspects of Dunkirk Public, and you can see in 2019 here, 
we've been running positive unit economics. We've been running, our operations were covered by the revenue. And, mm-hmm. and that's been the trend since we have actually launched. We've been having profitable cities and not so profitable cities, but overall we have not been scaling something that was losing money. And when I see actually birds numbers, I kind of get scared a little bit in established mass cities, which is where we had been present for two years or more. We've been having 14% contribution margin as of 2019, which was two thirds of our fleet. And outside of COVID, we very much expect to have, again, uh, positive contribution margins. And when I say positive contribution margins, that is revenue, less cost of operating, less depreciation. So everything except for HQ costs was positive for us until 2019. And outside of COVID, we expect to be positive. And just to shine light on what you just said about BERT and Dunk Republic in comparison, I put this slide together where we compare the two companies, let's say enterprise value to the revenues generated in 2020 and revenues expected in 2023. So we think, I think that Donkey is currently priced quite low. Our enterprise value to revenue ratio of 2020 is 6X, whereas BIRDS is 24X. And our enterprise value compared to revenue for 2023 is about 1x, whereas birds is about 3x. And we've had about zero profit margin in 2019. They had minus 77% profit margin in 2019. So we have really much better unit economics and not aspiring to grow as fast and still not receiving the kind of value. So I think we are... The- well, the, the, one, the one thing I'll push back on there a little bit is that Bird hasn't actually gone public yet. So we don't really know what the market's going to value it at. I would argue that like you could look at the parallels of maybe like an Uber or Lyft or something like this and say, you know, look, they also didn't have particularly solid unit economics. Though by the time they'd gone public, they really had kind of sorted a lot of that stuff out. You know, they'd got pretty efficient in their operations and things like that. It is also a little bit tricky as well. I mean, I always look at Bird and think, you know, by 2023, they want to be doing 815 million in rev. Like, where are they going to get those cities? Like, which cities do they have to win if they're going to be a shared operator to be able to, like, get that level of revenue? Personally, I just struggle to see that a little bit sometimes. Just because it feels like a lot of the larger cities have kind of largely tapped out and the rollout is certainly not going to be that quick. The one thing I really like about your model is that, you know, you can do the tier three and tier two cities because it feels to me like, I assume you know of the hollow bike model from China, but like once Mobike and Ofo had kind of self-combusted, it was hollow bike who won and hollow bikes kind of the one who now operates everywhere, but they they, had started out in tier three cities, you know? Yeah, they picked their battles, right? I mean, that's been also, we, we did launch first in tier one cities back in 2017. Again, before the Ofa and Mobike and the scooter companies kind of came around, we were first to go there and, and kind of the cities were saying, oh yeah, cool, you're welcome. And then one year after we, we had to renegotiate a whole permit thing. But uh, yeah, I think the partnership model that we found and the whole thing around being able to operate a small fleet, as small as, well, if you look at, we have 2,700 bikes, 60 locations, say 3,000 bikes. So we're talking about 50 bikes per location. Mm-hmm. So many of them are really uh, smaller locations. Yet the system works even for smaller locations. So f- partners are happy and we can launch them profitably from our side, very profitably. And also our partners are quite happy because many cities are offering and our campuses are offering a, a really great deal And then we also see a fantastic growth rate year on year in these locations as well. 
So when customers are happy, many of the deals that we've won and grown, as you can see here, as part of the growth of a large part of the, the 70 deals of which we want 40, significant part is now from growth deals that some city has bought previously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to maybe draw attention to one more thing, if you yeah, like. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, sure. Which is diversity of revenues. So during mm. COVID or before COVID, we were earning more than half of our revenues from visitor market. We were earning quite a large amount of that from, from visitors. When you say visitors, COVID, sorry, what do you mean by visitors? Visitors are people visiting another town or actually tourists, let's say from another country. Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, you mean on those sort of pay as you go rather than being on membership yeah, uh, or being on a, like a public transport system or something like that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Catch you. And yep. that represented more than half of companies total revenue. And with COVID that came to a total standstill, but we did very well in scaling the SaaS partners. We did very well in getting public funding for our own operations, also selling to corporates as memberships. So all of your employees become members at once. Mm -hmm. And also memberships for riders. And there we are looking into getting riders to kind of test with the concept of leasing a bike that is also a bike share. So you can keep a donkey bike for a long period with yourself yes. before you swap it when you want to. Right, right. Well, that makes it a lot of sense. I can see I can see that being a thing. Hey, well, look, I'm conscious of time. We're going to wrap up the sort of this section of the podcast and then we'll go to go into questions for folks who do want to learn about this micromobility membership is the name of the game. Come and join us and then you can come and sit in on webinars such as this. But in the meantime, you know, for folks who want to learn or make contact with you, like what can be useful uh, for you and how can you be useful to others in terms of being able to offer something from Donkey? Sure. I think for anyone who wants to operate a proven and easy turnkey convenient bike or e-bike solution, we're not just selling hardware. We have our own designed hardware, the whole backend and front end well integrated. It's like an Apple product. It works just mm. off shelf. You are welcome to contact us, whether you want to work in a campus or real estate or a small town or as part of utility operation, that would be, yeah, the most, I think, interesting thing to follow. And if you have donkeys in your city and you're listening in from a corporate, if you'd like to get a membership, please contact us. We have very happy corporate clients. And if you're an investor and you are interested in the transport micromobility industry, we think we have a really good bargain for you. So if you're North American, you can contact most large banks have some kind of trading relation with NASDAQ. Otherwise, outside of US, you can just enter the Saxo platform, uh, which is a trading platform to buy donkey shares. Yeah, those are the three points, I guess. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it's marvelous to have you on and to, to, to understand this. Uh, I, I, as I said, I really appreciated the chutzpah of turning up at the Berlin Micromobility Conference and parking up bikes outside and locking them to a bunch of things. So everybody saw them as they walked in. It was just, it was very smart marketing. So I, I really, I, I was always like, oh, I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> so yeah, hey, pleasure, pleasure to have you on. And yeah, thank you very much. I hope you hope to have you on soon. Pleasure to speak to you, Oliver. Thanks for having me again. Bye-bye. Cheers.